uh, we'll start talking about a little bit more today. What we were looking at in the section we looked at at the end of class um, before vacation was um, the question of who or what we took Ephraim to be. And remember, it's D, um, his Latin, like J, JM's, was vestigial. Even D knew more German. And why wouldn't it be after 2,000 years? Yeah, um, exactly. So um, the question then, um, wh where we go from that is, um, just so you look at that. It's going to take me a second to find it. But if you um, look at that, it's, um, what J.M. says is, we all we knew, saw, felt, or had imagined became through him a set of quasi-grammatical constructions that could say some things clearly, others not. Oh, were you locked out? Yeah. Oh my gosh, you could have knocked. Next time. Um, we all we knew, saw, felt, or had imagined became through him a set of quasi-grammatical constructions. Am I, are you on it? Oh no, you're on no, cue. No, no. Um, became through him a set of uh, quasi-grammatical constructions that could say some things clearly, others not. Okay, you remember that? Um, I'm not quoting it exactly right, I don't think, so it's worth going to. Um, oh, shoot. What chapter is I. It's the I'd rather skip this part one. Um... Um, so can you read that part? It's uh, bottom right. It's just it's the second to last page of um, I. What does it begin with? Overwidening area. Overwidening area. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, extend overwidening area. The question of who or what we took Ephraim to be, and of what truths, if any, we considered him spokesman, had arisen from the start. If he had blacked out reason, or vice versa, on first sight, we instinctively avoided facing the eclipse with naked eye. Early attempts to check what he let fall failed, E's grasp of dates and places being feeble as ours, his Latin like my own, vestigial, even Dean knew better German. As through smoked glass we charily observed either that his memory was spotty, whose wouldn't be after two thousand years, or that his lights and darks were a projection of what already burned at some obscure level or another in our skulls. We, all we knew, dreamed, felt, and had forgotten, flesh-made word, became through him a set of quasi-grammatical constructions which could utter some things clearly, forcibly, others not. Like Tosca, hadn't we lived for art and love? We were not tough or literal-minded or unduly patient with those who were. Hadn't, from books, from living, the profusion dawned on us of languages, any one of us, any one of which to who could read it, lit up the system it conceived, bird flight, hallucinogen, chorale, and horoscope, each its own word, world, hypnotic, many-sided facet of the universal gem. Ephraim's revelations, we had them for comfort, thrills, and chills, material, he didn't, he didn't cavil, he was the revelation, or if we had created him, then we were. The point, one twinkling point by now of thousands, was never to forego in favor of plain, dull proof, the marvelous nightly pudding. Okay, so... We, all we knew, thank you, beautifully read, read and beautifully written, J.M., just, <laughs> I would, would tell you in the Ouija board. Is he dead? Um, yeah, oh. um, 1995. Um, we, all we knew, dreamed, felt, and had forgotten, flesh-made word became through him a set of quasi-grammatical constructions which could utter some things clearly forcibly, others not. If you didn't know, that that was 
um, about an attendant spirit um, communicating through an Ouija board, what might you imagine was being talked about there? What are quasi grammatical constructions that can utter some things forcefully, clearly, others not? Poems. Poems, yeah. So, um, which is sort of where we left it last time. So, the idea is that Ephraim is in one way or another among the things that he could be if he's not a literal spirit from another world. If we don't think that this is literally a true story. Um, among the things that he could be is an allegory or an image or a metaphor for something like, well, let's say the muse. Let's say the idea of um, whatever work or process or discipline of both thinking really hard and opening yourself up to parts of your thought that you may not have complete control over or complete access to, um, whatever it is that yields the writing of poetry. Um, writing is, as you know, as you will know from the fact that writing papers is hard, writing is a really unnatural thing to do. Um, writing is, I mean, we do a lot of unnatural things, driving, bike riding, um, lots of things. Writing is one of them. What's unnatural about it is that we're taking the most natural kind of human expression, which is talking, something you do from the time you're 14 months old or so, um, where you just express yourself. You talk. That's what you do. And we're doing it in a highly artificial way in which you work really hard to sound natural with the words that you put on paper. And it's really hard to do that. It's really hard to sound natural. It's really hard. Anything written to make it sound natural is really hard. As you know if you've ever read transcripts of conversation, things that sound totally natural in conversation. If you, if, has anyone ever read a trial transcript, for example? Um, you have? And what are they like? They're weird. You have no idea what's going on. Yeah. I mean, like, no idea. People are just having this conversation, and it's clear that they think it makes perfect sense. And you can read 10 pages and just have no idea what was happening. Um, and yet everyone there thought it made sense. So putting words on paper does something really, really strange to words. There's a reason for that, which is that 90%, um, I think this is actually a true statistic. Um, 90% of communication is um, in verbal communication, in face-to-face um, -face communication, um, proceeds, or maybe it's 50%, it's some huge amount, proceeds through cues, through tones of voice, through gestures, through expressions on the face, um, through um, looking where someone else is looking and so on, that, can't, that aren't captured by the words. And the reason people know what words mean in conversation is that they're talking about stuff that's right there. Um, so that there's just a huge amount of contextual information in real life, in natural life, which gives people a sense of the meaning of what's going on when they're interacting. Those interactions are partly verbal, that is partly 
the actual words we're saying. But also, really, a tremendous part of it isn't verbal, but has to do with the whole situation. So trying to capture all of that with letters on a page, or a huge amount of that with letters on a page, um, it's kind of equivalent, again, I mean, maybe this is uh, an interesting analogy. It's a little bit equivalent to trying to capture three dimensions in two in a painting. That is, um, you have all of space. That's tremendous how much space you have in reality in a landscape. And then you have a painting of a landscape, and you're giving up. You're going from the cube to the square. You're going from cubic volumes to surface areas, to square areas. And you lose a tremendous amount so that perspectival painters have to compensate for that extraordinary loss in space when space goes from three to two dimensions. They have to compensate for that extraordinary loss in space with an enormous number of artificial but, um, but crypto-artificial supplements. An enormous number of crypto-artificial um, artifices. Or another way of putting it is, is that if you do a landscape, you know, you do a luminous landscape, um, you know, something like, um, I don't know, we always talk about Claude in this class, or at least I do. So Claude's, Claude Lorraine's luminous landscapes. Um, but again, one of the things about Claude Lorraine's luminous landscapes is that, um, and this is also a statistic that I believe is true, the amount of light in a Claude Lorraine landscape uh, in the painting is something like one ten millionth of the amount of light that enters his eyes from the original landscape. It's not how much light is actually out there. Obviously, there's a ton of light out there. But if you look at a land, if you look at a real landscape, about ten million times as much light goes into your eyes as a landscape, uh, as a painting of that landscape in a museum. So that somehow to try to capture light the way Thomas Kincaid, the late Thomas Kincaid. Um, try to to try to capture light. Um, you the, your resources are one ten millionth of the original of the thing that you're trying to capture. Um, it's tremendously different um, how much light there actually is versus how much light there is in a painting. Um, so there have to be all sorts of things that um, that writers, to go back to writing, do to make writing capture the meaningfulness of everyday interaction. And now, of course, poets try to go even beyond that in meaningfulness, try to, to quote Keats, load every rift with ore, as Keats puts it. That is, that in the landscape there should be gold everywhere. Everywhere there's a rift in the landscape that um, you're exploring. It should be filled with gold. Load every rift with ore. Um, that's a really hard thing to do. Um, so how do poets do it? Well, they have to work extremely hard and with extreme attention to detail. And that's something we've been kind of talking about obsessively in this class. Um, but they also have to be alert to all the thousand tiny tacit things that in conversation are just there without us ever thinking about them, are just part of self-expression without us ever thinking about them. 
um, the way most people, for example, don't know that they gesture when they speak. Um, I gesture a lot. And, um, but if you're the type of person who's ever been, as, and is, have, if anyone has ever shown you how you speak and how you gesture when you speak, it's always a surprise. It's like hearing your voice on an answering machine. Um, you didn't know you did that. Um, all of those things poets have to be aware of. Writers have to be aware of. Um, but especially poets who are trying to go really deeply into themselves, they have to be aware of opening themselves for the purposes of writing, for this extremely unnatural activity. They have to open themselves up to things that in conversation, in human interaction, in day-to-day -day natural interaction, are just there without their having to pay any attention to it. Um, some of you probably know, and if you don't, maybe you'll learn something really useful in this class, that if you have a completely um, uh, full cup of water to the brim and even above the brim, to quote Robert Frost, um, did we talk about this? And you're walking down a flight of stairs with a totally full cup of water, that you will do a lot better if you don't look at it as you walk than if you do. Do people know this? Okay, so this is, so you have learned something useful. Thank God. Um, yeah, your, um, your proprioceptive um, sense of where your hand is, you will hold something much more level and much more steady if you let your hand do it. Um, if you look, your visual system will override your proprioceptive system. But your visual system isn't nearly as good at keeping things level as your proprioceptive and your vestibular system is. Um, so if you're ever carrying something which is about to slosh over, don't look at it. Um, because if you look, what will happen is you will consciously be trying to do something that you can actually do a lot better unconsciously than consciously. The same is true with communication. Conscious communication is a lot harder than unconscious communication. However, writing is conscious communication. You have no choice. You can't do unconscious communication in writing. People tried, and believe me, it's awful. Yates tried, actually, um, and it's really terrible. Um, so conscious communication is really, really hard. It's a huge discipline. And what Merrill is talking about here is just that discipline. That is that somehow being alert to all you know, all you've dreamt, all you felt and have forgotten in order to write poetry means that through the writing poetry, all those things contribute to a set of quasi-grammatical constructions which can say some things clearly and forcibly, forcefully and others not. That's what poetry is. So, when J.M. and D.J., they were both writers. D.J. was not a very good writer, but he did um, write some short stories. Um, when J.M. and D.J. write through Ephraim, through writing a poem like this, um, where the small letters are all, are all J.M.'s, none of them are D.J.'s, except for the italicized section. Um, when J.M. writes, one of the things he's doing, and this is um, something we've talked about before, is opening himself up 
to everything he thinks he knows about what poetry is. He tries to get a sense of what a poem sounds like. To write a poem, you have to know what a poem is. You have to know what a poem sounds like, what a poem feels like. And what that means, then, is that through writing, among the things that become, through your writing, a set of quasi-grammatical constructions are the things that you've read. So we looked at that in Wordsworth using Milton. That is, um, hail, holy light, offspring of heaven firstborn. When he talks about the, when Milton talks about celestial light, and says, "Not the less do I do I wander by groves and stream." And then Wordsworth picks that up, as there was a time when meadow, grove, and stream to me did seem apparelled in celestial light. What's happened is he's read Milton, and he's been obsessed with those words. And then they become his own. And yet, they don't become so much his own that we don't see that they actually come from Milton. They're both Wordsworth and Milton. That's what's crucial. In the same way as the boy stood on the burning deck belongs both to Hemans and to Bishop. It was originally Hemans's, but then it becomes both Hemans's and Bishop's. Or Child Rowland to the Dark Tower came is both. Shakespeare's or whatever song Shakespeare is quoting, and Browning's. So in Q, remember this is all your paper topic, in Q there are a bunch of quotations that belong to other people, to Maya Darren, to W.H. Auden, to whoever, to Yeats, to Spencer. They belong to other people, but they don't mean the same thing quite when they are being quoted by Merrill. They, they mean both and. Not only what they meant originally, because they certainly mean that. It's not that J.M. simply said, oh, here's a good line, but I'm going to make it mean something entirely different from what it meant in the original. Then he wouldn't attribute it, the way Wordsworth doesn't attribute celestial light to Milton. Um, but he does give you the attributions. They're dashes at the end of each quotation saying this is who it's from. So clearly they do mean something before J.M. quoted these things, but there's a reason that he's quoting them. And the reason is has to be their relevance to what he's doing. So the question is, when he quotes how is his quotation also a kind of reinterpretation of the original? Or another way to ask this, I mean, I think if you focus on a quotation, it, it'll be clear um, what, what this sort of question means. But to put it another way, to what extent can you see him using, I'm trying to, I, I think maybe this is the way to put it. When we talked about metaphor, um, what we said about metaphors, metaphors are always untrue. That's 
the interesting thing about a metaphor. And the other major thing we said about a metaphor is that given the fact that you're saying something untrue, namely A is something which is different from A. A is, we could say schematically, A is not A. That's the, that's the structure of a metaphor. Um, whereas the structure of a simile is A is like B. So metaphors are always untrue. They're self-contradictions. A is not A. Um, whereas similes is A is like B, and A is always like B. Um, so if the structure of a metaphor is A is not A, but if it's also the case, therefore, that we're not always sure, and in principle can't be sure, which is the tenor and which is the vehicle. If we say A is B, is that a comment about A or is it a comment about B? Is it a comment about faces in the crowd or is it a comment about petals on a wet black bow? Yeah. So, so do you want us to do it like um, as if each one of those quotes were a um, epigraph? Is that what it might Yeah, be? yes. So the same way like a book, like the Gatsby yeah. started out? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, but not an epigraph that he made up, but yeah. an epigraph that he remakes. Yeah. But the question is to what extent, so to, put, so to put it simply then, the question is to what extent is he remaking the epigraph and to what extent is the epigraph remaking him? To what extent is A being asserted to be B or to what extent is the assertion that A is B actually changing what we say A is? To what extent are we asserting that B is A? So um, given the fact that Auden is in the dramatis personae, for example, um, and he does appear in the poem, although only briefly. He appears much more. He's actually a major, major figure in the sequels to the Book of Ephraim. Um, they spend a lot of time talking to Auden after he dies. A lot of time talking to Auden after he dies. Um, but given the fact that Auden is a character, um, what do we do with um, his quotation from Auden? to take an example. Given the fact that Maya is a character and then that she dies, what do we do with his quotation from Maya Dara? So um, take a quotation from Q. Take one that you like. Take one that um, seems powerful on its own terms and also seems neat to put into juxtaposition with the Book of Ephraim and see where it takes you. So yeah, what Rob says, as if they were epigraphs. Okay. So, you're looking puzzled? You yeah. sure? Yeah. I'm just like thinking about which one I like. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I think they're really great. Um, and, and, well, I mean, the point is they're all relevant, but I do think they're really great. Um, okay, so this question who or what we took Ephraim to be? Um, we have a couple of answers now, um, but let's go through a list of answers. Does anyone know? Of any Ephraims in the Bible? It's a biblical name, right? Yeah. Do you know any? Anyone? Uh, yeah, okay, so there is the tribe of Ephraim, um, one of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Um, do you know about Jacob's blessing? Hands. Yeah. Say more. Uh, it's the two sons of Joseph. The older son is uh, Manasseh. Manasseh and the younger son is Ephraim. And uh, Joseph brings his two sons in to be blessed by his dying father. The way, the way Jacob himself 
um, was blessed by his dying father, Isaac, yeah. who is blind. To put his right hand on the older son and his left hand on the younger one. The right hand's the greater blessing. And Jacob goes to do it, and he crosses his hand and puts his right hand on the younger son instead. Yeah, so, so there's, um, and there's a very famous painting by, um, by Rembrandt of the blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the point is that what's happening is, is Jacob is crossing his hands. And if you look at the painting, those hands are very close to each other, just like on a... Clock? No. Damn it. <laughs> no, close to each other. Horizontal. Yes. Yeah, two hands on a Ouija board. In this case, the two hands are one person blessing two people. But it's still that kind of triangular situation. Here are two people being blessed by an old dying person, two young boys being blessed by an old dying person. Um, it's his hands that are on them rather than their hands that are somehow on or creating him. Um, so that might be one reason to name him Ephraim. Um, Ephraim is, anyone else? Yeah. Wait, is Ephraim, is Ephraim the older sibling or the younger? Sibling? The younger. Okay. Um, Ephraim is also the name of, I believe it's Aaron's father-in-law. Um, Think it, I think that um, that Ephraim isn't so important, though. The name means, anyone know what it means in Hebrew? It means, or it's the standard King James translation is, being fruitful out of affliction. Something like difficult fruitfulness, being fruitful out of affliction. So there's affliction, but fruitfulness comes from that, being fruitful out of affliction. Um, all right, so what then could Ephraim be? So we've seen Ephraim could just be a spirit from the other world. That, in some sense, seems the least possible interesting understanding of him, is that he's literally a spirit from the other world whom they're literally in communication with, who is literally telling them things, um, telling them truths that they don't know. Um, he says the question of who or what we took Ephraim to be arose from the start. So that has to be a question for you. What's his name in the novel? E. E for? Ephraim. No. <laughs> no. no. Oh, uh, Eros. Eros, which means? Love. Love, yeah. So that gives you another very obvious meaning for what Ephraim is. What is he? E for? E for, you already said it. Here, work with me here. E for? Love. E for love. Yes, exactly. E for love. We skipped a step, but that's fine. In this little word golf we're doing here. Can you do word golf from Eros to love? Probably, but sure. we won't right now. You think so? That's your assignment for Wednesday. I don't know how to play. You, yes, you do. Gold to lead? I forgot how to do it. You have to change one letter at a time and go through. Oh, you weren't here maybe last class. You have to change one letter at a time. I was, I was there. Okay, you have to change one letter at a time um, to get from one word to another through real words. From gold to lead, it's hard? <laughs> no, love to dove is either. It's easy, right? Yeah. 
Okay. How do you know that you can, like, there's all these possibilities of where you can go, but how do you know that you can go from those possibilities to other possibilities that will get you in the right direction? Yeah, it's like writing poetry, except more pointless. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good for long car trips. You don't know, but that's the point. You can do it, and the, and the question is, so you give people possibilities. I mean, gold to lead is, or lead to gold is one that you can definitely do. Um, and then you ask people to see how fast they can do it. And s before you know it, you've arrived at your destination. Yeah? They have a really similar, like, stylized game on Sporkle.com. Like, no, I'm serious. Yeah. It's really fun because you have to, like, they give you the clue, obviously. But, like, they, you start with one word and then you have to work, you have to figure out, like, you don't get the next clue until you figure out the word that is being slightly, like, slightly changed. Yeah, slightly manipulated. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's um, just s through small increments you can go great distances. Um, but it is fun. And it's the point about word golf is it's a kind of um, symbol for something like what poetry does. That is that words rhyme, for example, completely um, arbitrarily. And yet what a poem does is it makes those, it finds a way to connect those things that rhyme. Um, there's no reason that there should be any connection between two rhyming words, but the poem plays the game that makes the connection, draws a connection between two rhyming words. Um, so, yes, Ephraim, therefore, Eros, therefore, love. Love between? Jam and DJ. Yeah, so there they are. And um, he stands for their love. Look, he's something they do together. Every night, the book of a thousand and one evenings spent with David Jackson in touch with Ephraim, our familiar spirit. What does familiar spirit mean? Just one sec. What does familiar spirit mean? I mean, if they're using it in the term of like a familiar. Like yes. A, What's a familiar? Like a, a sort of patron creature, like a demi. A patron creature. Yeah, like a witch's familiar is usually a black cat, like Maisie. Um, so a familiar is a creature who's hanging out with a witch, and there's something spooky about that. It's almost as though um, Miles and Flora are the governesses' familiars. I don't know. That doesn't quite work. But um, they're al they, yeah, they're always spooky. If you've read The Master and Margarita, the cat in The Master and Margarita is, um, is Satan's familiar, um, the Satan figure's familiar. Um, so yeah, what were you going to say? Arrows. Move the E to the end, you have rose. You give a rose to somebody you love. Get rid of the L, you have lose, because you're almost guaranteed to lose at love. All right. There you, go. there you go. That's clearly what the Greeks were thinking. Wait, you can nice. switch the letters? No, but... No, it's just, <laughs> I just moved it to the end. It's a yeah, different game. <laughs> it's a different game. Different game, but it works. There are lots of games. We call those different poetic forms. Um, okay, so familiar, what does that word come from? Latin. Latin for what other word in English is cognate with familiar? Family. Family. Yeah. Those who are familiar to you, your familiars, those your familiar surroundings, it, it's an it's an adjective it's an adjective which means something very close to familial. What about famine? No. It has nothing to do with famine. <laughs> just so you know. Or feminine. Um, but it does um, except through word golf. Um, <laughs> But it does have to do with the idea of family. So, a thousand and one evenings at the Ouija sport spent in touch with 
Ephraim are familiar spirits. So he's the spirit of what for DJ and JM? Family. Yeah, he's their family. He's what makes them a family. He's their link. So what does he stand for? He stands for the love between them. What makes them a family? What gives them um, the equivalent, the, the moral or emotional or psychological equivalent of a marriage? Um, he stands for the two of them together. He is their togetherness. Um, so he's their love and he's their connection. Um, what don't they have? do we find out in B in their house that you would expect them to have? Now strangers to the village, he asks. Remember they're in the enchanted village of Stonington, Connecticut. Now strangers to the village, did we even have a, do you remember? Telephone. Who needed one? He then asks. We had each other for communication and all the rest. So why don't they need a telephone? They have each other. There's no one else they need to talk to. They have each other. They're not, they're completely together and there's no, they don't need anyone else to communicate with. Um, at the end of the poem, they certainly have a telephone. Um, that's something that happens, is at some point they get a telephone and it's made clear that they get a telephone. But they don't need a telephone. They have each other for communication. How do they communicate then? Well, one way is through Ephraim. So if Ephraim is, let's say, their love, the embodiment of their love, the thing that makes them into a family that brings them together, if his name means being fruitful out of affliction, what else does he stand for? Or just what other possible things can he stand for? So here is a gay couple li living very intensely and living alone together and trying to build a life, what um, Andrew Sullivan calls a virtually normal life together. Yeah. Such a, like, I don't know, I feel like it's totally wrong, but like a child. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. They produce him. Okay. What they do together is they produce Ephraim. Those of you who finished it, who will replace Ephraim? Or who, at any rate, um, is basically not quite as old as Ephraim, but almost as old? That is, who comes into the world roughly the same time that Ephraim does, shortly after Ephraim, through Ephraim's offices? Anyone remember? The nephew, Wendell. Yeah, um, J.M.'s sister's son, who come, who's a real child, but his nephew. But his nephew, that's great. But that's what heterosexual couples can produce. Our real children in this world, what he and D.J. can produce is something either more or less marvelous, differently marvelous from a real child. The metaphor for a real child, where we could say Ephraim is their child, metaphorically speaking. And then the question is, is a child for heterosexual couples 
who have children, are what they're producing really a metaphor for Ephraim, the spirit of their love and their togetherness and their hopes and fears and sense of otherness? Or is Ephraim a metaphor for a child, the best that DJ and JM can do? Again, it's not clear which, way, which is the tenor and which is the vehicle here. Is Ephraim a child, or is a child Ephraim? Given the fact that in reality, IRL, Wendell is fictional, JM does not, the real James Merrill never had a nephew named Wendell, so he's a fictional character. Is he any realer than Ephraim? In this poem, is he any realer than Ephraim? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's... No, actually, I don't know. Yeah, that would be good. Good. I like the way that happened. Okay. Um, really, really, really get through M if you haven't by Wednesday. Um, are you guys liking it? Okay, good. Get through M if you haven't by Wednesday. Did you receive my notes? For yes, I, 